0: Sustainability Unwrapped, a conversational podcast about responsibility, ethics, inequalities, climate change, and other challenges of our times, where science needs practice to think about our world and how to make our society more sustainable one podcast at a time. Well hi everyone, my name is Catherine Ossianen. I'm a doctorate at the Hunting School of Economics at the Department of Commercial Law and currently I'm also a visiting researcher at Harvard Law School at the Center for Legal Profession as well as at the University of Cambridge Law in UK. Uh, what I'm doing currently is that I'm conducting empirical research on legal design and ethics in commercial contracts and today On our podcast, I have three lovely ladies who is about to join me to talk about legal design and sustainability. And what are the great spices that the use of technology can actually bring to the movements and the initiatives just as access to justice, legal innovation, and governmental sustainability projects. So first, I have here Viveka Falenius, who is the founder of Gender View, a company where is focusing on legal design, law, impact, and yoga, driven by a desire to infuse more empathy and innovation in the legal sector and beyond. Viveka, well, she is an international lawyer from Sweden with a law degree from ex-Marseille and her second master from Strasbourg. And, and above that, she has LLM from Stanford Law School. She has worked... More than 10 years in Brussels at European Commission, as well as in a law firm and as a lobbyist, and three years as a tech lawyer and the league of Futurists in Sweden. So she has a lot of good background to have a discussion with us today. And moreover, she's incredibly passionate about leadership, sustainability, personal growth, yoga, and how to design your life for well being and the progress second of all the second level lady who i have here today is marie potter saville who is the founder and the ceo of a famous Amarapi, a legal innovation by design agency in france she has worked previously as a vice president at LICAR emea at estee lauder companies in europe after three years and a legal manager europe at chanel moreover uh, she has been working as a private practice lawyer, and she was working about 12 years or so at Pressfields, Allen & Overy, Creel, Garcia & Cuella, Isa y Enriquez in London, Brussels, Paris, and Mexico City. Welcome, Mary. Great to have you on board. Last, but definitely not the least, I have here Elizabeth Tarwood-Ville, who is a lawyer an and a project manager specializing in legal design and after studying law in several jurisdictions she has discovered legal design working in-house and quickly she actually joined Mary at Amurapi in 2018 and she was working at Amurapi for three years and Bazet has been working as a project manager and she's been involved for many, many, many legal design projects, more than 40 of them, and training and conferences. And what is interesting is that she actually recently took a new role as a part of the French government open data innovation program. And I'm eager to learn more about that today when we discuss further. So first of all, thank you already beforehand for sharing your views, ladies with us on legal design and the advances of using technology. So, going straight to the business, what kind of technologies we are talking about here? What is the thing with law and technology that everybody is so excited about? And, and how does that work? What do you think about it, uh,
1: Yeah, hi, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, and yes, we are very excited about the uh, legal tech I think put simply, we can say that legal take, it's it's all kind of technology that we use to simplify the work of lawyers or to solve legal problems, basically. So there's a bunch of different things that you can do uh, once you combine law and take. So for example, you can find a lawyer, you know, like you find a pizza or a hairdresser. So you can answer a few questions online and then you get connected with the right lawyer. In Sweden, there's a new initiative called Justic that, just just that, and then there's uh, document autom- automation where you can reply to questions about your situation, and then there's a software that that just uh, generates the contract. There are also legal research tools. There's e-learning, you know, so you can teach your employees or yourself about like, GDPR or money laundering, etc. Uh, there's online dispute resolution, like a simpler way of solving problems if you have like a big online. Uh, marketplace, for example. So there's actually a lot of different things. And I think it's exciting because things that have been really cumbersome before, like going through hundreds or thousands of documents, it's now made a lot more efficiently because the computer is able to pick out the tricky issues. So as a lawyer, you can just focus on the really interesting stuff. And then the simple stuff is solved by the computer. But I think the more, you know, the actual gold here is really about empowering individuals, you know, lowering costs, but also explaining the legal stuff, making it more accessible, really. So I think that's the the, the juicy parts, the nice parts.
0: Oh, thank you. That was really interesting. What about you, Mary?
2: First of all, Katri, thanks a lot for having me as well. I'm very happy to share uh, this conversation uh, with Viveka, Elizabeth and yourself. Um, so, yes, indeed, uh, as Viveka just said, tech is indeed exciting. Um, mostly because of this feeling of the infinite of possibilities that it offers to the legal industry. Um, Truth is that the legal arena had been relatively slow so far (laughs) at challenging its own habits and processes. But this is now changing. Um, And it's been now at least, I would say, for five years in Europe, at least, um, that we've been seeing um, wider adoption- um, of of legal tech and for the greater good. So um, why is it interesting this combination of tech uh, applied to the legal sector? Well, the legal industry is obviously characterized by a very large volume of complex documents, uh, whether we're talking about case law, acts, parliamentary debates, contracts, you name it. And with this volume and this complexity comes um, a heavy workload. which is not always adding a lot of value to the pure legal reasoning, as Viveka said, it can free up. uh, The the point is also to free up lawyers from from the not so adding value work. Um, So uh, in addition, finding the right information within um, this volume of documents and making sure you don't miss, you don't don't miss, sorry, any key argument or document is a must uh, for lawyers. So quite logically, Um, tech has gained ground in particular in terms of automation and legal research. Um, But to be honest, Katri, we at Amorabi we also like to think that... um, It's really, innovation is really not just about gaining time and reducing human errors, um, but that's also about creating a satisfying user experience. Um, And this is why, while um, we embrace all the possibilities of tech, um, this shouldn't be the starting point in our view. And uh, innovation uh, should start with uh, user centricity, really, but I'm sure we'll talk about that later on.
0: Oh, thank you, Mary. Really interesting. I fully agree with you on that about the user centricity and uh, and the possibilities that we have to offer. What about you, Elisabeth? What do you think about this?
3: Well, thank you so much, uh, Katri, for having me. It's really an honor to be here among you know such uh, famous women in the legal tech industry. Um, I think, in my perspective, which uh, is very much aligned with what has been said, is that not only legal tech um, is I think it's very necessary to align legal recommendation with the new business model, which is actually not so new. As Marie said, um, legal has been a bit delayed in catching on the tech train, but the business has never actually took so much time. So with digital being ever more present in our lives in general, the legal industry really cannot afford to uh, not to align with these new practices. So I think legal tech is, very much, you know, a necessity at this point. It's also very interesting to look at it in the way it can democratize law. Um, So, for instance, the French regulation is very favorable to open data. Since 2016, they passed a bill that was very much, um, you know, forward looking in that uh, realm. But actually, you know, even though currently they're opening all the legal decisions rendered by tribunals in France, having all this data is not enough. Uh, Lawyers can't download a CSV format or an Excel table with all the data in it. They really need the tools to make it legible and to bring an added value. And I think this is where um, legal services really translate all the raw material into something valuable for lawyers maybe leveraging artificial intelligence, for instance, but really creating legal services that are centered around tech to enable really everyone to truly exploit it to its maximum potential.
0: Oh, that sounds really interesting. So maybe we will see even some kind of uh, searching tools for these uh, judicial documents in the future. So lawyers can uh, maybe search the things that they are needing the most and find them really fast, maybe using AI or other means of technology. That sounds really interesting. I, I want to be all ears about this project and how it develops in France. In France, you do a lot of these cutting-edge things. You're leading the way. Thank you for that. Well, what do you think? What are the advantages that um, what have you encountered in your work when you have been using technology within legal design? What, what do you think are the, the benefits, the incentives to use legal design and, and technology together? Um, yes, well, I, as
2: as I'm sure you guessed, Katri, as a legal innovation by design agency, our starting point um, is users, not tech, uh, for the sake of tech. So we're focusing on users. You know what are, we want to know what their needs are, what are their expectations, pain point, points, and uh, how might we solve the users' pain points through the redesign of documents or processes. So it's basically. Um, the question of how do we create the right interfaces uh, between users and a task or a service. Um, So now, once you've identified and prioritized your users' pain points, tech can actually come as an additional tool to solve these pain points. Um, It's it's really an addition to the... um, the variety of of, um, solutions you can bring. If you look at contract automation, for example, what's the real problem? Um, Most people have been trained not to read. You know, there's a quite famous study by (laughs) Berkeley um, a couple of years ago. We've been trained not to read. It's a bit of a shocking idea uh, not to read fine print. And and we've been trained to blind sign sign agreements uh, more often than not. That's because of the combination of what fine prints um, does uh, to our brain and the quite authoritative tone that most contracts use that triggers the kind of automatic signal in our brain. Okay, let's not waste any energy. (laughs) It's not been designed to be read. So let's do something else instead. Let's just take the box. Um, This study is is very, very interesting, by the way. Um, So the problem with, you know, if you're aware of this issue, um, sheer tech does not solve it. Uh, There are masses uh, of automated contracts which certainly save a bit of time in the short run because you can fill them in um, more rapidly and you can sign them electronically, for example, but they are still blindly signed and thus very unlikely to be actually applied. So uh, In in practice, it does create additional risks instead of limiting risks, which should be the point of a contract. (laughs) So leveraging legal design really enables us to identify and then solve the real problem, um, which is the user, the user's pain point. Um, That's how we created what we like to call the first trust building agreement. Uh, We had done uh, hundreds of hours of user research in various uh, contract redesign projects for various clients. And um, in particular for NDAs, for um, non-disclosure agreements, the conclusion was particularly clear. Um, NDAs are a key touch point at a critical time in building a relationship between two companies. And yet most of them, most of the NDAs usually create just additional constraints and frustrations, you know, you're trying to create trust. And then the first, the first document that one party receives from the other is this horrible <laughs> wall of text, whether it's digital or not, honestly, the experience is just as bad. Um, so it's not ideal to start, you know, on good tracks, uh, trusting each other and just collaborating with one another. Um, so, right when uh, what you need is building the foundations for a solid future relationship, legal design enables to create this um, this satisfying experience. So we've we've created a digital NDA that ensures that both parties are really engaged and and, uh, are confident about this new relationship and that each of them is prompted to trust the other one through transparency of the language, clarity, and a satisfying legal UX. So creating trust and reducing risks uh, from a legal standpoint at the same time. That's, in our view, the true value of combining legal design with tech.
0: That's really interesting, Marie. I fully agree with you on that. So when we are applying legal design, we can definitely see more transparency, more clarity. And as we know, the trust and creating the trust is the, is the cornerstone of every relationship. And if we are not able to create the trust, maybe we are not able to expect really long-run relationships neither. So that's really interesting. I'm, I'm really, really glad to hear that you have done a digital NDA how how was to actually work on that was it a long process to make this kind of a new kind of a digital contract <laughs> uh
2: it wasn't that long actually you know elizabeth and i found ourselves um i think it was at the beginning of the first confinement to be honest the, the well the first in france uh so that that's back to april i'm losing track of time April last year. <laughs> um, so we, we found ourselves, you know, with tons of raw materials from previous uh, projects with clients. We had done tons of uh, user research and we had all this material and we were thinking, okay, uh, each individual project, you know, for each given client is, is completed, that's great, but we've got all this user research that's really converging to tell us something. <laughs> and, and how do we make the most of it um, for for a wider audience than just one client after the other? Um, and so we launched uh, this project in April. And Elizabeth, maybe you can refresh my memory. It took us, what, three months,
3: maybe? Um, yes, I would say three months to get the first prototype. And then, of course, there was a lot of iteration process because um, we kindly asked our clients to test it for us. Um, so that takes you know as long as you want because you can always iterate more. <laughs> I think it's good. <laughs> iteration cycles, and sometimes you just have to say, okay, this is good enough. Um, but no, it was actually quite quite short. I agree with you, Marie. Surprisingly short, in fact.
0: Yeah, that's that's really good, you know, because I, I think that many of the audience might think that wow, legal design and tech—that sounds fabulous—but what kind of cost we actually incur in here? Like, how, what does it cost to have all these really great, fabulous, like digital contracts that we are making? Well, what, would you say, like in general? Like, uh, how would you, how would you, how would you see that? What are the the entrance costs for changing from the, how would I say, <laughs> the old-fashioned way of uh, contracting to this new? great way of applying law and technology together, what what kind of costs we, we can expect in here? I'm I'm glad to open the discussion with everybody. Like, what the customers can expect in here?
1: I think the point by Maria and Elizabeth is interesting, that the more you work on it, the more you just learn and collect data and get used to something new. And then it gets easier and easier to find new solutions. I think, I mean, I see it myself. There's no uh, need to, you know, reinvent the wheel every time you do something. So maybe you need the whole process, like the formal legal design process, the first time you tackle a a challenge. And maybe, you know, the fourth time you you sort of know a bit more already. So you build on the experience. So I think, I mean, we're still still a new sort of sector uh, and we're not that many people who work on it. But I think this NDA project is a great example of how, you know, costs are uh continually uh, decreasing.
0: Would you like to elaborate a little bit further that uh, like companies who want to enter on legal design field, what kind of investments they need to do if they want to, let's say, renew their contract space on uh, NDAs? On like what kind of costs they might uh, be facing? How, what would you think? <laughs> yeah, I think I usually think of legal design like you can really be
1: uh, super ambitious with the process. Like i worked on project where It's new and you have to like really dig in and find the problem and, you know, do the whole process. But I think there's also like an informal version where you do something less ambitious, but with the help of your experience in the field. And then I think for me, that has been like a way to uh, engage people in it. Like, okay, let's do this first version and let's not, you know, put a huge investment into this. But just as a taster, like this is
2: how it could look like just by doing something simple. I think, you know, in addition to cost, what really matters um, are the benefits, the KPIs, um, the efficiency that you gain. Because as such, you know, you can state any amount. I could tell you 15 Mm. or 50 or why not, you know, 150K. Um, Mm. you, 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 You can't I mean, you can't tell whether it's a lot or not. (laughs) whether it's cheap or expensive, Mm -hmm. Uh, whatever the amount is, um, it's neither cheap or or expensive until you've measured the value that you're creating with this redesign. So to be honest, It's really a matter of um, measuring uh, very precisely KPIs. And for example, we just had a very recent KPI, not on our NDA, um, but uh, with one of our recurring clients in the pharmaceutical industry. It's a fairly old contract redesign that we did uh back two years ago i think um and they had never they had never shared uh with us the um the, the kpis and just incidentally uh talking about something else they said oh and by the way you know what this this partnership agreement that you redesigned uh, two years ago it it decreased uh, the negotiation time it divided the negotiation time by four wow <laughs> and so and we didn't know <laughs>
0: That's really so, well done. you know like,
2: how much I mean, what what is the value you put on that? I'm sure you can measure it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's less um less uh, people having to work on this uh, negotiation, less business people, but also less lawyers. it's it's more trust, more business, more sales. I mean, the value is quite quite large, I think. <laughs>
0: I fully yeah. agree with you, Mary, that is exactly what I'm doing with my research, is to measuring the impact of, of legal design. So that's why I found really interesting your answer. That. <laughs> <laughs> and why I was asking this question is that what I have been way, uh, facing through my work is that often the clients might be at the first place... Um, little bit hesitant about thinking like oh we should change all our contracts should we renew all of them oh that might be expensive huh Mm. so i think people are always maybe at the first days worried that oh it must cost a lot of money what does it cost to do these things so that's why i'm really happy marie that you put on the table the thing that by measuring the impact of design we are actually able to show that even these um Costs that incur at the first stage of uh, renewing are something that can be covered later on as the process goes further and as the business goes further through these benefits that you can incur, like you we're saying, save of time, negotiate on time, transaction costs, and other means. Because uh, I think it's important that also talk about that. What does it cost to get on this track? Because the track is really fascinating. Combining legal design and technology, but as we know, there is always some entry cost. But as Mary and Viveka was saying really nicely, is that the benefits that we are expecting and we are seeing at the later stages are for sure to cover these entry costs when the when the process is done now, in a in a right way. Really interesting, Mary. But what about you, Viveka? What kind of advantages have you encountered when? when you have been combining technology and, uh, and legal design? Yeah, I think for me, it's mostly a
1: question about really making sure that you're creating the right legal tech solutions. So by exploring beforehand, you know, if if this is really needed, and then make sure people actually want to use it. So uh, I think it's easy to come up with a million like cool tech ideas and and, you know, work on that. But will they actually make a difference? So I've been in workshops on legal design and people have been very you know uh, obsessed with some idea they want to build but once you start applying the legal design maybe you discover that you know there's actually no need for this or it wouldn't be applied and so you know maybe you don't even want to go forward with it so I think it's easy to have like cool ideas but the legal design just makes sure that it's worthwhile and that it's actually useful and I also think once you apply tech to legal design, it's probably easier in most cases to track the way users use this tool, and then you can reiterate easier by, you know, looking at the data of, um, you know, how they use an app, for example. And then finally, of course, you know, if it's tech related in any way, it's easier to scale. So you know, if you have something online or in an app, it usually becomes accessible to a lot of more people. Uh, and I remember, you know, I was working on this legal design project for. The California Department of Justice, and that was an online project, and you know, for the whole state of California. So that's an example where you know I was really excited about the fact that this would actually reach a lot of people. So I think, oftentimes, there's a huge benefit to combining uh, tech and legal design, but it's not at all a necessity.
0: That that's a really interesting point, and that uh, I was I was thinking here that. Uh, when when you are when you are having um, having these workshops and then the projects, projects, uh, what you have help for the customers? Do you usually like um? Do you do things first plans on paper, or do you straight go for the digital applications and try it in there? Because I think for our audience, it would be maybe good uh, go a little bit deeper that how the process goes. So, for example, when you are. Uh, designing a new tool for a customer do you usually have it let's say in a paper version and you prototype it with the end users or will you straight go to the digital tools and straight try it with the digitals?
1: That's a great question I think uh, you know the legal design process is a lot about doing fast things a bit fast and easy and not too like ambitious so if you build a whole digital tool as a, like, um, you know, as a prototype and test it on people, maybe you won't get the perfect um, feedback because it's already built and people are maybe polite if you ask them. Uh, and also it's a huge cost to start building those things without knowing if it's worthwhile. So, you know, if you do the paper version, you can just sit like in the workshop and go out and try it 10 minutes, you know, on a random colleague or person in the street. And then you get the feedback really quickly before you continue to build on it. So... Yeah, I would go for the paper version.
0: <laughs> and what about you, Elizabeth and Mary? how are you doing? Do it? you do it usually with the paper versions or how, how do you do with the digital transformation? I think
2: it, it really depends on project. Um, I think, you know, if you're trying to test um, an interaction with users, which eventually is going to be online, at the testing phase, um, it's important to to mock up um, <laughs> the online experience. So as Viveka said, it's absolutely not worth to build the whole digital tool but you can cheat <laughs> basically you can um, create the mock-up on Marvel, for example and it's it's um it pretends that it's interactive actually it's not you know there's no code it's just that you click on one screen and it takes you to the other screen so it's it's cheating a bit um, it's not a real digital tool but it it's good enough for the test, and you can also see, um, you know, you could eye track uh, what um, uh, what people uh, look at first and where they click first. And you've got a, a, a great way, uh, a great range of tools to do that. Um, So usually, we would try to have at least a mock-up on Marvel. uh, That's uh, like a fake interactive one. And we would test it during a workshop with users. We've done that very recently in September uh, with a bunch of um, teenagers in the UK. That was so interesting. Uh, They were between 13 and um, 17 years old. And we had very quickly done the first screens. Uh, It was a privacy policy in the video game industry. and we had actually empowered them on a mural to directly edit the screens and the mock-up so they could put little hearts or question marks or or you know they could like draw uh, by themselves um digitally on 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 the prototype. And it was great because it's not passive at all. Um, and they gave us just brilliant feedback so that we could um, improve the prototype. Oh,
0: wow, that sounds fascinating. Wow. What about you, Elizabeth? What, what kind of advances have you encountered within technology and legal design?
3: So within I. Your- <laughs> sorry. Um. I think. Uh. In my experience, my very recent experience is actually very interesting in the way. Uh, design really uh, brings forward the cultural aspect, which can be a very like high blocking factor. Uh, with the legal tech so for instance if you're you know talking to people who don't have any use of tech and it's very clear that it could help them but they're very fearful of what it might do Um, some lawyers for instance are always afraid that they're going to be replaced and so they're very reluctant and i think the benefit of first prototyping early as we just mentioned enables them to get a very clear picture of what is actually going to be built And so in the case of open data, for instance, if you talk about open data, it really brings out fear in people. It, you know, this big brother is watching you feeling it's quite uncomfortable. People don't know what you're going to be using it for. Whereas if you prototype an interface very rapidly, then they see the end product of it and then it reassures them a lot. So I think in the way to debunk fear and also bring on board people who might not be, you know, so used to this still new method of uh, doing law, it's very important. Um, The second aspect of this cultural, you know, um, uh, this cultural importance in legal design project, I think, is also um, to really understand where people come from in terms of their use. So even if you have a very brilliant tech. And you're not looking at the way people are currently using their tools. It might completely, you know, fall short because you haven't been paying attention to how you can make the switch. So that was one project we did at Amourabi that was actually very interesting with a top, top French legal publisher. And they today have one of the top legal research tool most used in France with a huge database with everything in it. They're very famous but um legal research tools aren't always optimal yet all lawyers use them and they've been used to using them with their defaults if that makes sense and so they really wanted to bring forward a new method where you could just put in clear in simple not not plain language but in um you know natural or, language natural language oral language so the way you would just naturally speak you could ask your questions, So can my employee leave the company without notice, for instance, instead of saying resignation of an unlimited duration contract. So you can just ask the question uh, that applies to your situation. But in the way that we created this new interface with this new function that was quite new, we realized that we really needed to take into account the current use of keywords and legal terms, because if you tell your lawyers today, oh, you can just use your natural language, First of all, they're not going to do it. <laughs> like instinctively, they don't do that. And then they don't really see the added value. And they also have a fear that it might not be legal enough or it might not be as serious. So you might not get the same results, even though we're using the same end database. So it's really important to actually, so we created a prototype that really resonated with that, bringing forward the logo because they know the legal publisher so well bringing forward help bubble with information saying, okay, well, natural language is this, but you can also still use uh, keywords, key legal terms if you want to, sort of trying to make that switch. And if we had just, you know, brought forward kind of saying, this is the new solution, it's so much better, use it, end of story. Uh, It probably would fall very much short as to what it's doing today. So I think this is really an aspect of, legal design that is so key in developing legal tools that makes sense is that it allows you to really understand the culture and create something that will resonate with users and also help them move their practice not just you know bringing forward and another tool that they have to use but something they really feel like they could adopt
0: that's cool i love that story so knowing the end user is actually the most crucial part in here to know where the people are coming from. That's really that sounds really interesting too, but I get a little bit confused. And so when you're talking about like natural language, do you do you mean like a natural language what we have, for example, in the, in quantum computational science, like a natural language processing? Or does it mean like when when, when you're talking about that you have a certain keywords that you can use the church engine? To, to look for certain cases so or does it mean more like um, like everyday language like we would maybe say like a, like a plain language like a understandable language
3: it's natural language as in the sentence you would use every day so it's the same algorithm Marie correct me if I'm wrong but it's the same algorithm as Google so the same way you would say uh, restu- what are the restaurants in Paris? Um, the new restaurants open in Paris right now. You would put that in Google Tool. Then you would put the same type of legal question, of course, not like random questions, legal related questions, but in that format. And I think the point was not just to address lawyers, but also maybe operationals, Hr, people who deal with law on an everyday you know basis, but that don't necessarily have the, you know need to have such a like heavy legal, uh, response when they are searching they want something that's actually quite operational and so this was also the point to really make that more accessible to other um, sectors than just lawyers oh well, that's really
0: interesting so it actually allows room for everybody even not having a legal background so the language what you're using is like everyday language as we are recording to to google but maybe not as a uh, like a natural language processing that we have in the, in the computer computational science. But, wow, that's, that's really interesting. Well, how about, Elizabeth, how do you see that the use of technology can improve and, 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 uh, and sustain sustainable development of law and uh, in the field of legal in general? And uh, what kind of uh, social impact do you see that this kind of approach can
3: have? Um, I think it really resonates with what Viveka was saying earlier about how you how uh, having legal tools can help you scale. So it helps you diffuse the law within a company, for instance, much faster. So, for instance, if you're doing a you know an e-learning on complex legal topics such as competition law, you can make them in um, a format that resonates with the digital mediums people are using today. So if for instance people are learning right now they're learning through quizzes documentary youtube tutorials you can use that format for le- more legal you know questions and maybe complex principles but then it allows them to you know digest it in a way that they're used to and then to spread it out and i think the impact of that is very much to develop a general culture of law which um, everyone should have but Um, it's not always the case and that's normal because not everyone can be a lawyer but there are some legal rules that everyone should know in a company for instance and so having these mediums and these new formats that really resonate with your everyday life I think really help you uh, apply it and spread it out in general um, much beyond just one application but really all throughout and sort of always have that you know idea in your head oh okay I remember that you know, I shouldn't be acting this way. Or when I talk to a competitor, I need to be very careful about this and that. And so when you're in situation, you can actually leverage everything. Whereas of course, if you stay in the old fashioned way of, for instance, you know, l- learning about law, then it's going to be much more difficult to leverage it later on. And it's also more difficult to replicate it for a different area of law, for instance. Whereas if you have a very creative e-learning that is very well structured and Adam we did a lot of those. It would be, you know, much easier to have that, you know, full ergonomy. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's an English word, but um, if you have the set out that's already made, then you can replicate the methods on another topic more easily. So I think this is very much the impact that I see is, Infusing law all throughout and maybe making sure that law doesn't stay with lawyers so much as it does today, and you don't need to ha- be an expert to apply law at a more general level, of course, at a more expert level you do. But I think this is why leveraging technology really simply makes sense because it's a necessary component in legal services today. Well, thank you,
0: Elizabeth. What, what about you, Mary? What kind what of impact do you see here? Well, we're very
2: much focused on um, how might we create a systemic impact You know, uh, Margaret Hagen at Stanford prompted all legal designers back in 2019, I think, at the Legal Design Summit in Helsinki to try to reach that systemic impact way beyond, you know, the outcome of one given project for one given client, which is already great, but um, how can we maximize that? And um, our take on this is that combining legal design with tech is an amazing tool um, to improve access to justice, and more particularly, to help empowering citizens, making way more informed choices uh, online, in particular, and thus better exercis- exercising their rights online. Um, you know, the, the digitalization of our lives and the data economy uh, has come with great advantages, Uh, great benefits but also with terrible drawbacks in terms of blind signing Uh, we've all uh, you know ticked the box uh, whether it's privacy policies terms of use you name it Um, and we've been used to doing that a lot I think it's now time to see tech as an empowerment to not blind sign, but precisely regain control over our personal data, <laughs> our lives, <laughs> uh, and 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 the way we use um, digital services. And that this is where the combination makes a lot of sense. Um, it's not tech for the sake of tech, which might have been the case um, previously. Uh, hence the blind signing, and it's really more about empowering citizens. So just to give you a practical example, we were lucky to be chosen by the French Data Protection Authority last year um, to create um, model interfaces for children and teenagers uh, that would empower them to better understand uh, their rights, but more importantly, to really exercise them. And so, for example, we developed um, very low-tech, by the way, tools (laughs) um, to make um, them understand very complex concepts like targeted advertising, for example. You know, it's complex even for adults, the fact that you are the product, (laughs) and it's not a very pleasant idea either. Um, So, um, We've used uh, legal design, especially uh, storytelling, to make um, very young children, like eight year, years old, uh, understand uh, what this concept is. And then we've um, made that widely available, thanks to digital, uh, so thanks to a bit of tech, um, in uh, by integrating uh, this explanation within a digital interface.
0: Well, that's really interesting. You have been on so many different kind of projects, but I think, especially with this one, what uh, concerns children, I think that really has a great impact, and that is a way for us to also secure the use of uh, technology that is in a good hands and it's a uh, it's been used in a proper way and for better good. So I think this this project is really interesting. What you have in the game industry? What about you, Rebecca? What what kind of connection you see here for for the sustainability and the the benefits. Yeah, I I thought of, um, you
1: know, how law has become increasingly complex. You know, we're operating in several countries. There are more requirements in all kinds of fields. And I think companies and public authorities, you know, they struggle to understand the legal framework they're operating in. So, you know, sometimes they even give up, I think, or know it's just sometimes impossible to actually know all the rules that you you have to comply with and so i think you know what's the point of all these laws if we don't understand them and the companies don't really comply with them so you know we're not protected by the paper product and so for me legal design has always been you know if you're doing a privacy policy uh, targeted to the users it's still like half my goal is still to educate the company and like make the CEO aware of these issues and really understand them. Because if the company itself doesn't really understand the issues, then how can they, you know, implement it? So it's it's really both sides. And I think it's legal design could really do something amazing in this field by making, you know, by making the companies more in, in charge of what they actually have to do and how. Uh, so not only for you know, us as individuals, but really uh, making the companies more aware. So I think, yeah, that's something really important, I think.
0: I fully agree with you. But hey, last but not the least, you might have any any calls for the further actions for combining law and tech, and especially the efforts of legal design here. Yes. How about you, Vivek? <laughs>
1: Yeah, this is my favorite question. (laughs) No, I think if you've listened to this, you know, and you think this makes sense, like legal design makes sense, I think, you know, join the movement and make sure that your company actually uses these tools. Uh, And I think it will, like we talked about trust, uh, also the worth in terms like of economic um, uh, benefits, there are so many benefits with legal design, so I think Uh, you know, this is a movement and it's starting and I think, yeah, join it. And also I was thinking like the GDPR, which is really like the prime example of something incomprehensible to a lot of people. You know, imagine if the four of us would have been in the drafting team of the GDPR, you know, we would have avoided a lot of headaches. (laughs) So (laughs) that's a call for action. Invite us to the next drafting (laughs) round.
0: How about you, Mary? Call for action.
2: Well, Viveka told it. You know, <laughs> I absolutely love this idea. <laughs> I'm I'm part of the the B team. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, we we might have to to still wait a bit for that. Uh, but you know what? Um, I we're currently preparing a, a conference um, on legal innovation in Paris in November with a, a large number of uh, legal tech agencies, legal innovation agencies, etc. Um, and I recently heard about uh, uh, judges in Belgium um, now drafting their judgments in plain language uh, and and making it accessible uh, digitally as well. So, you know, what is <laughs> how amazing is that, quite frankly? Um, this is really the way forward. Imagine if all the uh, judgments that you can actually find uh, online currently, where you know in plain language or with a like a, a summary of key points made by the judges themselves. So, less room for interpretation as well. <laughs> that might trigger other legal issues, but but still, I mean, we're we're living such exciting times. Um, I think my call for action is is just. Uh, Make, make the first step, if you haven't already, and, and just join the movement.
0: Wow, well, the example that you gave from the Belgium courts, that's incredible. Did they, do you know if they changed the legislation on there or how they ended up like having the course actually doing their verdicts in plain language? Do you might have any further yeah. information on that? I I don't know about
2: Belgium uh, specifically, but for example, if you take France, uh, there's actually a constitutional principle, which is not new, which dates back to 1999. um, And that states that um, there's a constitutional principle of clarity of the law. So, you know, it's there. Uh, I think we, we might have been maybe less sensitive to it or le- or blind to it uh, for a number of reasons, but it's there. It's part of our legal framework and it's been part of our legal framework for a long time. What's happening now that maybe we're rediscovering that law should be clear, <laughs> but it should intrinsically <laughs> fundamentally be clear. And it's there. I think we have all the legal basis that we need um, to, to make law clearer. And as I, as I used to, I like to say, you know, I've been practicing law for <laughs> now 20 years or so. I don't know of any law or any regulation which imposes to be incomprehensible. I don't, Mm. Uh, but I know about Article 12 of GDPR, to come back to Viveka's point, uh, which you know, obliges you um, to provide information, uh, to collect consent in a clear way. It's there in the bloody text. So <laughs> you know, there's no need for additional legal basis. It's there. I think the 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 point is more um, lawyers realizing <laughs> what it means and getting the necessary skills to put it into practice. Totally.
0: That, that's really true. And all our Finnish-speaking listeners, uh, we actually have the same in our jurisdiction as well in Finland. For example, we call it hyvänkieren So we can actually find all these same principles and, and law clauses in our legislation as well. It can be the administrative law that everybody should uh, be able to understand what they're reading. So we actually have it also in the Scandinavian uh, judicial family. I, I'm sure, Viveka, you have the same in Sweden because our histories are greatly connected. Yeah, and, uh, actually, I studied my well. legal education in France
1: and I, I came to think about Code Napoleon, which is, you know, Napoleon who who actually tried to simplify the whole thing and put it into one clear text. So maybe he was a legal designer back then.
0: But well, Elizabeth, last but not the least, what kind of calls you have for the future? Calls for action.
3: I think there are two um, very differently reasonable calls for actions. Um, So the most reasonable one, I think, is to really encourage legal practitioners in general to be very curious. And as Marie said, developing new skills beyond just your core legal skills, which are so important. And it's not about, you know, (laughs) spending less time on your you know, legal background, but it's more about uh, seeing the benefits of having uh, other skills that will really enlighten actually your legal skills. So things like, of course, design thinking, this is the topic of discussion today, understanding tech, their requirements and needs. So just understanding the language around tech, I think is a mission that takes a bit of time, but it's very worth it. Because I feel like oftentimes the shortfalls of collaboration between lawyers and tech is that everyone in their own sphere is a very much an expert so you have tech experts and legal experts and they feel scared by the expertise of the other and so it's a shame because there's so much to do and it's also about finding a common language so i think that's very important so you know talk to your um the de- like you know any informatic team about maybe they can do a training that's not just about you know the, the the safety trainings that you usually get, but more about how does it work and why it works that way. Um, I think of course, project management is key in the way you run your you know legal team and the legal recommendations you provide, seeing them as part of, you know, a much wider project and being very much um, involved within the project and not just giving a legal recommendation at a, you know, at the moment where you're solicited, but trying to get as much info as you can and be very much an integral part of the project team. That's not often, sometimes that's difficult, not because of lawyers, but if you can, that's great. (laughs) And then I think the less reasonable, I mean, this will take, I think, a longer time, but it really stems from the people who are making the law. Uh, and so I think the way, not just judges, but even before that, I think judges are interpreting a law that's already very you know, complex and then lawyers interpret what judges say and then people try to understand what our lawyers are saying. So I think if you go to the very root of that, then of course that would be much better for everyone. But I think this will take a a, a little while. Um, I'm very hopeful, though, because um, French government for instance, um, has very much embedded design in many ways. And that took, you know, a few years, but now they know a lot of, you know, methodology, design related methodology and apply it. So, you know, legal design is probably the next step and it will come. It's just a matter of pushing those boundaries and, you know, Drafting law in a legal design way would be the ultimate goal, I think.
0: So It feels that everything actually comes down for collaboration. It seems that the collaboration in the interdisciplinary sphere is the key for for success within combining law, technology and the legal design approach. Well, thank you so much. I actually still have one really tiny question about the future. Do you guys think that in the future we might see all the contracts in the digital form? Do you think that we will still see more paper forms or will the technology part take the charge in the future?
2: Digital for sure.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm already like, what's the point of
2: having it in paper? <laughs> yeah, once you've tried it, I mean there's no there's no going back. Mm.
3: And also it saves the environment, which is, you know. Yeah. They- Mm -hmm.
1: I love how aligned we are on each question. (laughs) It's
0: like no (laughs) discussion. (laughs) That's excellent that you Elizabeth for the sustainability aspect in here. So yes, it definitely does save the environment where we are not having so much printing. Well, thank you lovely ladies for sharing your views today on legal design, technology and sustainability. And I definitely share the same dream with you that we will see legal design to be the more mainstream, if it's not that already, of course. So I hope that we can have a chance to talk to you soon. Uh, until then, thank you so much and uh, have a really great rest of the day. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thank you.